Would you pray with me? Lord, as the song has said, we ask that you would speak. I pray that you would speak through your word you, and that we would pay attention to what you've spoken in your word. Lord, test our thoughts and our attitudes and may your word prevail over unbelief today and every day as it always will forevermore in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20. Um, the, uh, while, while you're opening, we're, we're going to be finishing up chapter 20 today. Um, but I want you to think for a second, who are the most marginalized people in our society? Um, is it, uh, you, you know, like, like how would you define marginalized would be the first part of it. Like the margin, if you were looking at a Bible, right. And you see on the side of the page, there's a margin around it, right? What that's the fringe, right? So who are the people that our society beats into silence of the fringes, right? The people we think that the world would be better off without, and I know that our culture often wants to marginalize us as Christians. That's not what I'm talking about. So if you're starting to think that way, I want to correct it right now. What I'm talking about are the people that even we would marginalize by habit, by instinct. At some points in our history, this would be people of various skin colors or people of socio, uh, particular socioeconomic statuses. Um, or, or uh, the last one, which I think it actually is in our society, it would be people with incurable issues in their lives, right? And when I say incurable, I'm using the finger quotes, right? Um, so, uh, like, I mean, all, all three of those have been accurate in our time, er, in, our, in our nation's history, right? Uh, racism still exists. It's not nearly as prevalent as it once was. So I don't think that that's the fringe argument, the marginal argument, whoever's pushed off to the, mar the margins now. Um, our culture doesn't so much have the rich versus poor caste system that was prevalent uh, in the early days of, of our nation. So I don't, I don't really think it's that either. And like I said, I do think it's the people that have those incurable issues. People who uh, may, maybe someone with a drug habit. Or maybe someone with some form of psychosis, right? Like if you're driving down Highway 101 and you see someone talking to themselves and they don't have an earbud in, I promise you, when I'm walking around Toledo talking to myself, it's, it's probably because I'm on the phone. But, but the, the people that don't have the earbuds in, these are the people that when we look at and we notice and we realize that they're there, we often avert our gaze or we recoil inside. It's the people that are marginalized by, again, habit. The people that we're told to look away from. Turns out in the first century, it wasn't actually so different either. There was racism. There was the Jew and Gentile divide. There was, uh, there was within the Roman, uh, the Roman Empire, several different castes of economic status, and those were divided. But again, there were those people, those people with incurable issues who, want, who, who nobody wanted to deal with. And so you just kind of shove them off on someone else, or you, you shove them off to, uh, to live on their own. 
And today we're going to read about Jesus' encounter with two marginalized individuals, one of which, thanks to the Gospel of Mark, we actually know the name of, and the first century Christians probably knew his name too. Luke also records only one individual, but we'll I'll address quickly why that, like a harmony issue there. Um, but, but the point is, when we, read, when we read this text, I want us to realize that we're, we're, we're looking at two people with incurable issues who have been pushed off to the margins of society. And they encounter Jesus, and they find him to be merciful instead of everyone else that treated him so harshly. So let's read. We're in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be reading verses 29 through 34. And as they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. A little background for what we just read. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem, which is what they would have been traveling, because, I mean, if you read the very next verses, starting Matthew chapter 21, you find that Jesus is doing his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So that road from Jericho to Jerusalem was very well traveled, but it was exceedingly dangerous. Uh, robbers were in wait constantly. And traveling that road any time of the year was, was not a good thing except during the feast of the Passover. And that's what we're going into in, in the narrative of, of Matthew's gospel. Uh, so during the feast of the Passover, these roads were filled with people. They were just filled with crowds. And these are just common everyday folk going towards Jerusalem to, se- to celebrate the Passover meal. And so since there were so many people, it made it, it, made it pretty okay to go beg on the side of the road. If you were a blind beggar, you are, I mean, you are such a target for robbers. <laughs> there is nobody more helpless than a blind beggar when somebody comes on and says, give me the money in your pocket or I'm going to stab you. So since there were so many people that were there, it made it safe for the, for the blind and the other beggars to gather on the side of the road and to, to call out, to cry out for people to notice them. And it was commonplace for the crowd that was walking to, to, to shout out something akin to shut up, you homeless bum. I don't want to hear you. Be quiet. And up until this point in Jesus's ministry, he's been withdrawing from crowds. He hasn't traveled in great pomp and circumstance. He hasn't traveled even where other people are. If we were to turn to Matthew 12, 15 and Matthew 14, 13, we'd read twice where Jesus withdrew right after something major happens. 
After, right after he, he gives parables or teachings or feeds people, he withdraws. And that's been his nature up until this point. He's had kind of this hidden ministry, even though everybody knows who Jesus is. It's like, well, where's Jesus right now? I don't know. But now Jesus is traveling amongst the crowd. He's going with them. And that would make a bit of a stir. People would know, oh, Jesus is here. But the crowd is not there for Jesus. The crowd is there for the Passover, and Jesus is there amongst them. Now, blindness. These two guys were blind, okay? There's, there's a lot of reasons to be blind. There's re people are born blind now. But if we were in a, uh, in, in a third world country, in an underdeveloped nation, blindness would actually be significantly more common, and it would be something that develops over time. And I'm not talking about when, uh, when you have to wear glasses. I mean literal blindness, usually caused by a bacteria or fungus that causes someone to lose their sight. And I think that's what these two guys were, because when we read in verse 34 that they recover their sight, the Greek is, is really clear. They got sight again. The again is the important word. So I think these guys had vision. They lost their vision. And blind people in general were marginalized in, in, in that first century society, but especially the people who became blind. Because somebody who became blind was, uh, was unable to work, but they used to be able to work. And so the families of these blind, these blind people would look on them with absolute disgust. They would, they would wonder what sin they caused in order, or they did in order to inherit the blindness. They, they, they would look at them and like some sort of guilt-tripping mother always, look, always say something like this. You had such promise. What happened to you? And it would be a curse. Like uh, usually blindness would come about earlier in life um, instead of later. So the common, common time for people to become blind was about 20 to 30 years old. And once full of promise of life, once excited about what they were going to do next, what the, the, the career they were going to go into, whether fishing or carpentry or any other uh, career in the first century, tent making, all of a sudden they're crippled. They can't have a family. They can't support a family. Their, their dreams are shattered. And then just to make it even worse, all of society goes, get out of here, you bum, and gets, they get pushed off. They get ostracized from their family for being a drain. They get turned into social pariahs. There's no home to send these people to. And so they become homeless and hopeless. And they find out when the Passover is, and they go sit on the side of the road, and they cry out for people to give them money. Or they inhabit outside pools or bathing areas, somewhere populated. And so the, Jew, the first century Jews and the first century Romans would just get used to seeing these people. They would ignore them. No matter how loud they shouted, they would ignore them. And this is precisely the type of person that Jesus is condescending to. Jesus is unafraid of the taint of sin 
and he's full of mercy on the poor and the downtrodden, the ostracized and the marginalized. Now, I, I read a lot of commentaries on this because it's such a short, short passage and the meaning seems so obvious that I figured I had to be wrong. And so, so I read about two more commentaries than I normally do. And, uh, and one of the commentaries made a point that this, this here, this passage, is, is proof that the Bible supports social justice. And I'm going to let you know at, at the, 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 the outright that that's wrong. That is not the point of this text. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll try and remember to touch on that later. But this is, this is not a commandment for us to go end world hunger. This is not a commandment for us to, uh, to go take in all the homeless people. Like, like I said, the Toledo Hotel closed. These people are homeless. I'm not saying, hey, every one of you needs to take a homeless person in now. I'm instead saying, hey, if we can support them, let's pray for them and support them the best we can. That's all I've said. But I, I, I want us to understand that this passage is not about social justice. This is about a miraculous healing that Jesus does to people who are marginalized. So I'm going to try and remember to come back to that. And if I forget it, just remember I have a rant on that later. And uh, stop me at the potluck. So let's take, let's take a look at the text, right? Let's, let's ask some questions of the text and just see where it's going. Um, first off, what is the son of David? Well, it's a term of messianic hope. Uh, the title for today's sermon was clever and it alliterated. And, uh, and of course, I put my bulletin down somewhere. But it's messianic mercy on the marginalized. I don't normally alliterate titles, so I'm pointing that out just because I alliterated it and I want to give myself a thumbs up. But, but the, when, when they cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me, Son of David. What they're crying out is this, this messianic term uh, about, uh, found in 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David that his line will rule and it'll, it'll continue forever. Um, God says this to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's 2 Samuel 7, 16. Um, and this, this same term comes up in the next chapter in the, tri the, the triumphal entry uh, in Matthew 21, 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Praise in the highest. So here's two blind guys, ostracized, marginalized, being shoved off to the fringe uh, just by every ounce of their lives. And they're crying out this term of messianic hope. They somehow hear that Jesus is coming and they start shouting as loud as they can. Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, son of David. Now, they call him Lord. But I, I, we've covered this before. The word Lord, the Greek kurion or kurios, is essentially the Greek form of the word sir. They're probably not declaring his divinity here. They probably did after they were healed, but probably not before. 
So I want to make that mention because this is not that the, the Jews did not understand that the Messiah, who the Messiah was. It just in, in culture in general, they didn't get it. So they were shouting out this uh, this this statement. They were saying, Lord, son of David. They knew he was the Messiah. They figured he was marching in on Jerusalem, but they didn't realize he was God. Now, what about the crowd? How did the crowd respond to them? Well, they responded in instinct, the same way that you and I probably would if we heard somebody walking around shouting on the streets. There's this famous story now uh, between my wife and I. Um, we, we lived in Chicago for three and a half years, and in the first part, we lived in this, this neighborhood called Humboldt Park. Uh, technically, we were Ukrainian village, but Humboldt Park and Ukrainian village had this weird overlap. And so anyway, so we were in this apartment, and there was this huge Puerto Rican festival that covered like the whole neighborhood of Humboldt Park. Uh, I mean, there's more people in Humboldt Park than Toledo, okay? So just this one couple block area. And there is, the, in the Puerto Rican festival, people walk around with these ice cream carts, and it's just like you walk, and the wheel turns, and it dings a bell constantly, and there's no way to shut this bell up. And so it was like 2 in the morning, and we're, we're trying to go to sleep, and and, uh, and we hear this dinging, because we had to sleep with the windows open because it was the middle of summer and it was super hot. We hear this dinging and it wakes me up and I'm so tired and I just, I can't deal with it. And so I shout out, I'm, I'm like, oh my gosh, go home! Without even thinking that this guy can hear me. And all of a sudden I hear this pitiful reply, I am. <laughs> I responded in instinct. And I made a little bit of a butt of myself, but, <laughs> but, but I responded in instinct, right? Shut up. Do you know what time it is? And the crowd responds similarly. Shut up. Do you know who this is? He doesn't need to stoop to your level. Be quiet. This is the Messiah. Who do you think you are shouting out to the Messiah? You're not worthy to speak. And this is not how disciples of Christ should act toward people. But it wasn't actually Jesus' disciples that told him to be quiet. Notice it was the crowd. If we read verse 31 again, we read very clearly that the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. Not the apostles. The rest of the people that are there. That's why I say they're acting on instinct. They're saying, shut up, be quiet. You're waking us up two in the morning. It's probably not two in the morning. It's the afternoon. Anyway, and how then did the, the guys respond? Did they shrink down? Oh, you're right. I am being annoying. No. No. Also in verse 31, we read that they began to cry all the more. Now, the Greek there is that they, they, they shouted, they cried. It's the Greek word krodzomai, uh, which means I cry out. But, but they, it means it, it's, it's used in a progressive sense, meaning they began to shout louder and louder and louder. And so we only read that they said it twice, right? But they probably just kept going. They were being persistent. They were screaming out. They knew that this son of David could have mercy on them. 
And that persistence is a hallmark of someone who truly knows that the Lord is able to hear them, that the Lord is able to help them. Despite opposition, despite being told to shut up, despite being told how dumb we are, somebody who really knows that the Lord is willing and able will keep doing it. One commentary I read said this. It said, this, this is a quote from the commentator. Being persistent is a mark of true faith. When being told to be silent, a true Christian will unceasingly cry out louder and louder. Whether in prayer, like these men, even though they may not have realized that they were praying, but knowing that God is able to hear and answer our pleas, or even in the sphere of proclaiming the great name of Jesus in the public realm, faithful men and women remain persistent to what God has called them to do. And look at their plea, too. If we look at Matthew, uh, Matthew 20, 33, we, we read their statement, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Now, these guys were blind. They, they, they meant that they wanted to be able to see, right? They, they, they knew that they had seen before. Again, I think, I think that they had been able to, but... but but they, they, they knew, they, and they knew that, God, or that Jesus was able to help them because he had had this history of a healing ministry and the, this rumors have spread. We all know how gossip spreads. It can spread in a large group, small group. It's just wildfire. So uh, the, these guys had, a, had an inclination of what sight was like. And so they kept crying out. And they asked, let our eyes be opened. Now, these men knew their condition, right? They, 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 they knew what they were. But an unsaved person is not who this is calling out to. Uh, an unsaved person does not have the luxury of knowing what they're missing out on because they're a corpse in need of life. If you don't believe me, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and we were all dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead. Dead men don't cry out. But when God gives a glimpse of life in his regenerating a sinner, it's then that they start crying out. But even, even a live Christian can have their eyes grow dim, can't they? Needing the Lord to open them once again. We can think of Peter, who tried to flee from the trouble of Jesus' crucifixion, right? Trying to, trying to hide on the outskirts. But then he needed his eyes opened, and they were. They were opened when the, when the rooster crowed, right, that final time. And all of a sudden, he realizes Jesus said this was going to happen. He had his eyes opened in that sense. And what did he do? He became a great evangelist for the rest of his life. If you don't believe me, First and Second Peter. Um, or, or like David in Psalm 51. If you know Psalm 51, it's after he sinned with Bathsheba, right, um, he knew that his vision of, of, of how holy he needed to live was, had, had grown dim, and so therefore he needed to confess his sin, and he prayed, like in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
If your eyes have grown dim, if you've forgotten the glory of God, if you are a Christian and you, you, you know that you should do, do this thing, but you haven't, cry out like these men. They had that, that, that benefit of having been able to see before, and so do you. Now, what's Jesus' response? Does he respond like the crowd? Shut up. No, he doesn't. Uh, we've discussed the, the word pity previously at length, so I'm not going to go into it, but it's my favorite Greek word, splonkidzomai. And I, I love that word. It, it, it means the, the, your, your bowels, your innards, right? When they start shifting. It's, it's, like, uh, it's like when... Um, <laughs> the, my, my, my best description is when you get to class and there's a test that not only have you not studied for, but you haven't really been doing anything in the class for a while, and you had totally forgotten that it was happening, and you feel like your whole, like this part of you just drops, right? Uh, or when you show up to work and it's peer review day and nobody told you about it, and you're like, oh no, <laughs> even if you've been doing good, you freak out at peer review day. So, so the, so the, the word splonkidzomai means to feel it for someone else, to, to have, have your, your, your bowels drop for someone else, to be moved to pity them, to care for them, to love them. And Christ alone has both the compassion and the ability to heal these men. And that's, that's why I want to bring up that social justice thing. Because, because when we read here that these men cry out, who responds to their cry? Is it God or is it the disciples? It's God. Jesus. Jesus responds. He pities them. He does what they need. This is, this is not a clarion call to social justice. If we were to read the parallel passages, by the way, in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, we would read that what the apostles do is go to the blind men and say, take heart, get up. He is calling you. That is the role of a Christian. The role of the Christian is not to solve world hunger. The role of the Christian is to feed the hungry and give them the gospel. To say, get up, he is calling you. Come to salvation. Know that the Lord is ready. Know that he is willing. Know that he loves. That is what a Christian is supposed to do. Um, I, I had great hopes for what we now call the emergent church, which was a movement uh, that's almost extinct now by God's grace. But, but, uh, but the emergent church was founded on the principle of, oh, God calls us to action, so therefore we should act. And we meet in these small communities and we love outward as best we can. And, and it became this theologically neoliberal movement. And it devolved into full apostasy, which means to have broken from, broken from, broken from Christianity. So while it did well on focusing on the poor and the marginalized, it misunderstood this passage. It misunderstood Mark when he, when he records that the, the apostle, Jesus says, hey, go get them. And so the apostles go and get them. 
So Jesus is telling us the same. Go and get them. Go and get the poor and the marginalized. But not to solve all their problems. That is not your responsibility. Your responsibility, unless you work for a d division of the government that happens to make you do that. Anyway, but, but, <laughs> but, but our responsibility is to go and get them and bring them to Christ. So Jesus responds in pity. That's what he has for us. It's that pity that has him condescend to the needs of sinners. And he perfectly portrays, ultimately, what he said they need to do in verse 26. That was last week. That was a week ago. So let me, let me go ahead and read Matthew 20, 26. Uh, remember the context. The, uh, the, the rulers of the Gentiles lord over their leadership. And they, they, they really celebrate how big they are over, over these pitiable uh, uh, subjects. And so verse 26, Jesus says, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Is that not what Jesus did? And so Matthew brilliantly puts this story at the end or Jesus in his brilliance of, of ordaining the chronology of his ministry, uh, brilliantly puts this at the end as they're marching to Jericho and he becomes a servant to those whom nobody else wants to even come near. Now, what happened to these two guys is Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. Now, the story could end there. It could just simply end there. They recovered their sight. Jesus did a miracle. Moving on. Triumphal entry. You know, yay, palm branches, which I am not going to get. Anyway, so when we read the text, I'm not going to make you guys wave palm branches. So um, I'm not the Roman Catholic Church. Anyway, so, uh, so, the, um, so we could just end it there. Jesus did a miracle. He went to the marginalized. He had this mercy on the marginalized. But then we finish the sentence and we find out that they follow him. They become his disciples. They go after him. And that's the right response of somebody opening your eyes. If God has opened your eyes to anything, salvation, his providence, his goodness, his kindness, the proper response then is to follow him. So who were these guys? If they followed him, who were they? Well, Matthew tells us of these two guys, right? Um, but Mark and Luke list only one, which we've discussed this before. Usually when the numbers, like when we had the demoniacs, right? Mark and Luke list the one demoniac, but then Matthew lists the multiple demoniacs hiding in the, hiding in the, the caves. Usually means that there's one who's a spokesman. Luke is always trying to get us to understand how something fits in the grand narrative, uh, Mark is always trying to help us understand the activities of Jesus. He's trying to connect the dots with the life of the Christians at the time. And Matthew is always trying to be exact on the numbers, almost like a tax collector. Huh. He was, by the way. So, <laughs> so Matthew is always trying to be correct on the numbers. Luke, correct on the storyline. And Mark trying to connect those dots with the, life, the lives of the first century Christians. So if we understand those, and if we read Mark, uh, Mark 10 and Luke 18, we find these are not contradicting stories, but they're the same story with different emphases. 
And in Mark 10, 46 to 52, we specifically verse 46, Mark names one of these dudes. He says that one of them is named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. That means that Bartimaeus was probably known among the Christians. And so these guys, they go and they follow after Jesus. And one of them is, oh, that's right. It's Bart. Gosh, I know Bart. How's he doing? I wonder. That's essentially what's happening when Mark is writing the gospel. And then Matthew, Matthew is just writing us, telling him that they did the right thing. But what stands in all three of these accounts ultimately is that these men, when they receive this mercy, this messianic mercy, they follow him. Christ offers mercy to everyone, every single person, whether it's in his providence, if you have a roof over your head, you have people who care about you, uh, whether it's in comforts, whether it's in his salvation, anything else. What we are supposed to do, what our job is to do when we receive mercy from the Lord is to follow him. To those who are suffering or think that you're without mercy from Christ right now, I'm telling you that you're wrong. The Lord granted you life and breath this morning. And since he has granted it to you, what you're supposed to do is turn that breath into praise for him. Because our circumstances do not dictate our responsibility of being grateful. And if you're suffering and you're feeling as if, as if God is without mercy for you right now, or as if God is not real, perhaps you need to do exactly what these guys did. Cry out to him. Be persistent. And remember that he is able to answer. And when he does, follow him. So in this text, we find several points of application. I usually try and dumb it down to three. And even when I try not to have three, I always have three. Uh, so number one, we need to remember that Christ is the only one who's truly able to help. Going back to that social justice thing, any form of mercy ministry that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to have, it's for the sole purpose of bringing those people to the gospel or delivering the gospel to them. You can, you can give out a million coats over the next 10 years of your life, and if you do not preach the gospel to any one of those people, then you have wasted your opportunity. So number, uh, number two, being persistent is a mark of a true Christian. We are not to cease when the crowds around us tell us to quiet down. In fact, we should cry out all the more, just like these guys. And that's hard because we are by nature people pleasers. We like it when other people approve of us and our work. We like it when we're not making other people angry. But we, when we're, when we're being faithful, uh, we should be more like the apostles Peter and John when opposition came on them and declare, we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 and number three, we have to remember that Christ cares for the marginalized. There's nobody whom Christ is unable to be merciful to, to open the eyes of and to rescue. Nobody. 
Nobody is beyond the redeeming grace of God. If he's got it in his mind to save someone, then he will save them. Whether homeless, whether drug addict, whether obnoxious family member, I hate to tell you, even they can be saved. Whoever it is in our society who, who we instinctively marginalize, Jesus can rescue them. So who are the marginalized in our society? I've got an idea. I think, I think it's the homeless. I think it's the drug addicts. I think it's the really annoying characters. Who is it that's marginalized? Because they are whom the Lord will call to salvation. Not to spite you. <laughs> Not just because you don't want them but because Christ sees their worth, though we think them worthless. So I'm not calling you to go end world hunger. I'm not saying every single homeless person you need to go get $500 to. But I am calling you to remember the mercy of the Savior. I'm calling you to be persistent in your troubles like Bartimaeus and his friend to remember that he calls to himself those who our bodies recoil at the sight of. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, friends. Christ is warm and loving where we are often cold and hateful. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful that these men were persistent in crying out to you and that you used them as, as an example of how we ought to be persistent. But moreover, I'm grateful that you go to the marginalized, the social outcasts, the pariahs, the injured, the wounded, the aching. I'm grateful that you hear us because that is us. I'm grateful that there is no one beyond your redeeming hand, not even blind beggars on the side of the road to Jericho. So Lord, please help us to have that same vision of, of people, recover our sight for the worth of, of even the most destitute and desperate struggler in this world. In Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus grants mercy to those who are pushed into the sidelines of society, the greatest going to the least. Go in peace, saints. <laughs>